When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Don't Retire, Graduate, the podcast that asks you what you want to be when you grow up so you can graduate into retirement with purpose and passion. I'm your host and valedictorian, Eric Brotman, and I am excited to share with you that our audience is now over 100,000 downloads and growing rapidly, and I can't thank you enough for making Don't Retire, Graduate a part of your personal financial journey. Our guest today is John Crane. John's an author, a financial advisor, and a retirement income planner who spent more than a decade providing personalized financial guidance to business professionals, corporate executives, and medical specialists. He's a member of the National Association of Insurance and Financial Advisors and the Million Dollar Roundtable. A lifelong learner himself, John shares his expertise with students at hospitals and high schools throughout the Washington, D.C. area. His new book is called The One Number Budget, in which he reveals a simple approach to budgeting that will forever impact how you look at retirement and your financial goals. He describes the current state of financial services, discusses the psychological aspect of spending, and explains why and how one number is all you need to help ensure that you're meeting your goals. John, welcome to Don't Retire, Graduate. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, I, I'm, I'm excited to find out what my number is. I don't know if we're going to do that on air or not. I don't know how comfortable I am sharing all of my financial details. But, you know, it, on this show, for the last five years, we've been calling a budget that we just call that the B word. Um, and the show is clean. So the only B word we use is budget. And I, for one, despise the art of budgeting and the idea of budgeting. It's fine for companies, but I hate it for personal uh, use. And yet you've managed to make this uniquely easy and different. And I definitely want to dive into that. But first, I'd like to know a little bit more about you, how you got into the financial advisory business, and then what possessed you, like the rest of us, to write a book. <laughs> so I got into the financial services business as a second career, uh, right out of college. Uh, of course, you know, as any young man, you know, you want to be a lot like your dad. So my dad was a 35 year veteran in the IBM corporation. So as soon as I got out of college, I joined a, another fortune 500 company called Sprint and started in the telecommunications industry and worked my way up the corporate ladder, chasing paychecks and promotions. And by the time I was 29 years old, I had my master's in business administration. I was married, I owned a house. I uh, was a senior national account manager assigned to Sprint's largest account. And everybody around me was just like, wow, you're really doing great. And you know, this is, you've got it made. And I, 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 I just didn't want to do that. Like I, I, I Sprint was a great company. They treated me really well, but I, I just couldn't see myself spending, you know, another 30 years doing that. So I took about two years while in that job researching different careers. And uh, I, a part of my process was I would, once I found a, a career that I thought might be a good fit, I would meet with people that knew me well. And I would say, Hey, could you see me doing this? And when I got to financial advisor, I started hearing, not only could I see you doing it, but if you choose to do that, call me, I want you to be my guy. And that's when I knew wow. that I had, I had figured it out. 
And uh, so in 2002, I pivoted and joined uh, the firm that I'm with, uh, Financial Growth Partners, affiliated with um, Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, and uh, Crane Financial is a, is a partner of that. And um, yeah, it's been almost 21 years now. Good for you. I, actually, um, I've got you by a little bit. I started at this 29 years ago, which is hard to believe. Um, but, you know, something about our business does attract, um, it, it attracts a certain kind of person. It, it attracts people who not only are um, are savvy in terms of financials and numbers and all of that, but more importantly, people who really understand people and are empathetic and can listen and learn and uh, and really want to help people. I mean, we really despite all of what Hollywood has done to demonize the financial professional, most of the financial professionals I know are actually really trying to, to make a difference in people's lives. So let's talk about the book. I have it. I've read it. I'm going to dissect it and play with it a little bit today. And I've got some, some talking points that I, I wanted to throw out at you. But first, why a book and why budgeting? <laughs> Uh, budgeting is something that all my clients uh, don't really like to talk about. I, when I first got into the industry, I created a spreadsheet to drive the budgeting conversation. And on one side, I had all of your fixed expenses. And on the other side, I had all variable expenses. There were about 30 to 40 categories. Then up at the top, I had a simple uh, income calculation, backing out retirement uh, contributions and a simple tax calculation. And in this very center of the spreadsheet, I had basically backed into what I estimated their monthly surplus was based on the information they provided. And sadly, like it took me about 15 years to realize that clients really hated that spreadsheet. Um, and they hated it for a number of reasons. Uh, one is it's time intensive. Nobody really wants to go through their, their stuff. And, but it, it also, it's the, the nature of the budgeting conversation with anybody, whether it's a financial advisor or a spouse or anybody, there's, there's always kind of a, you know, a worry that you're going to be judged. And we see a lot of that with, the talking heads on TV and radio, you know, they start diving into a caller's budget and then you start hearing, well, oh my gosh, how did you not know that you couldn't afford that car? Like, I, the budget shaming, I, you can tell, like, I, I really have a problem with it because it's just not helpful. Mm -hmm. um, so I wanted to create a tool that um, people would find helpful and would get results. One of my drivers is, and you likely know this too, is the demographic of 55 to 64 in America, their median net worth is about $215,000. And some of that's home equity. So you can't spend all of that 215. And to me, I think traditional budgeting bears some of the responsibility for that result. And part of me writing the book was, I want to try and put a dent in that problem. I want to show people a different way, a way that simplifies the budgeting process. It takes a lifetime approach to budgeting and helps people get results. And about three, four years ago, I was talking with a colleague and he just walked me through a whiteboard conversation, which is basically the similar math problem to what's the, the book's about on a whiteboard and guides the client through that discussion. And I was like, I, th I think I could adopt that. And then uh, after watching uh, Moneyball, the movie for, I don't know, the 18th time, uh, there's a scene in the movie where uh, the 
the smart guy in the film says to Billy Bean, the general manager of the Oakland A's, it's all about getting things down to one number. And I was like, I wonder if I could get budgeting down to one number. So if, the, if I knew what that one number was, if I'm a client and I knew what that one number was, like how much I could spend every month, as long as I keep my, my spending below that number, then I'm okay. And that's, that's where the concept was born. Okay. Um, and, and I'm, I'm fascinated by how people have adopted this. I'm sure uh, the fact that you've, that you've not only created a book, but that you're, you're working clients through this exercise, I'm sure it's been well received and I'm sure you're feeling more rewarded by it as opposed to putting people through a budgeting process. That's a little bit like a, like a root canal. Um, you, you talk in the book about your number and historically advertising, Lots of different companies have said, do you know your number? What's your number? And the number is always how much money do you need to be financially independent? The number winds up having lots of commas and it's a huge daunting number and it scares the heck out of people, especially young people, because it relies on inflation assumptions. And so you tell somebody 29 or 39 years old that you're going to need X millions of dollars to, to live the way you live today. And it almost feels insurmountable. So when we think about your number, lots of us have been trained um, or conditioned to think about that huge, unwieldy number that we need to get to. Like if you only had right. X million dollars, you could be fine. So you're talking about a totally different number. How do you do it? Let's 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 walk through the exercise uh, for 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 all of us, including myself. Sure. So just for folks listening, if they want to kind of look at the spreadsheet and follow along, if you go to the book website, onenumberbudget.com slash worksheet, you can get a copy of it and look at it. So the way that the calculation is done, it's pretty simple. There's only really eight or nine boxes that you really need to be concerned with. And up at the top, we start with gross household income. And once okay. we have that gross household income entered, the very first thing I'm telling clients to do, and this is if I'm meeting them for the very first time, is mm -hmm. I'm backing out 20% for wealth building and I write specifically for retirement. Uh, okay. And then once I back out the retirement 20%, then I put an estimate in for a blended tax rate between federal, state, and local, because uh, as you know, the IRS is gonna take it anyway. And then, we get down to uh, the calculation there uh, re reveals what's available for lifestyle expense. And that's an annual number. I divide that by 12 to get it to a monthly number. And then to further simplify, I back out the client's two largest monthly expenses, which usually are housing or childcare, housing or you know, student loan, something like that. And once I back out those two monthly expenses down at the bottom, then I get to my one number. And when okay. I'm walking a client through for the very first time, I'll get down to that one number and I'll say, can you get through four weeks on discretionary expenses? Can you get through four weeks on this dollar amount? And I'll wait for an answer. And if they say yes, then I'll point back to the 20% savings number and say, okay, well, if you can get through four weeks on this number, then that means this 20% savings rate is possible. Mm -hmm. And then we'll go through a little crib sheet exercise of, well, let's see what you're saving right now. Most people that I get introduced to are usually saving somewhere between eight and 12%, somewhere around there. Mm -hmm. uh, they're maxing mm -hmm. out their 401k plans. They're saving a little bit in an investment account. Um, 
but it, right around 10 to 12 percent. And that gives me the baseline to then have that conversation. Now, you had referenced earlier, we were talking about the uh, traditional budgeting method. When I would, when I'd reveal the estimated monthly surplus to my clients, let's say it's 3000 a month. And mm -hmm. I would suggest, okay, well, out of that 3000 a month, we need to uh, increase your savings rate. So why don't we shift 1500, just half of it over into mm -hmm. long-term wealth building. And it's usually at that moment, the client starts to sing. And I'm sure you've heard your client sing too. They go, well, I don't know. I let's let's do 300. You know, and it and it was always it, it was always met with some level of scarcity that they were afraid to commit any of that money to long-term wealth building. The reason I share that is when I do it this way with the one number budget, and clients see that they're saving 12. They see that it's potentially possible that they could be saving 20%. Now it's like competition kicks in and they're like, oh yeah, we, we can, we can move it up to, yeah, we can get to 20. No problem. Yeah. Let's, let's figure this out. Um, and sometimes, you know, I, I have to kind of talk them down a little bit because, you know, if you make a $2,000 shift in your cash flow in one month, like you're, you're going to notice. <laughs> Yeah, no, no question about that. So, so essentially, what you've done is reframed the conversation around uh, around calculating a savings or investment rate um, that's healthy, and you use twenty percent, and and that's sort of a rule of thumb, I presume. Um, I, I presume you also then do some kind of calculation that says, hey, you're already forty six years old, so twenty percent won't cut it. You need to be at twenty three yeah. or twenty eight or whatever it is. Um, or you're young enough that you can get away with uh, with 15 percent if you also take advantage of these these other options. Um, but I love that there's a barometer. Um, you know, we've historically used 15 percent as a barometer and said if if right. you're saving 15 percent for long term, forget things like education savings and things you're going to spend. But for the long term, if you're saving 15 percent and you and you have no adverse debt then you're already you already have the foundation to to create wealth i mean that really right. um, ultimately that's partly what this is about um, and i love the idea that this is a, a simple monthly budget exercise now how do you handle folks who uh, who maybe do this but either don't maintain the right emergency fund or the right um the right risk management or insurance tools or other things that might be um icebergs in that journey for them how do you how do you put that into this equation and make sure that they also have a protection component to their planning. One of the things that I always felt was really missing from traditional planning is that it's a snapshot in time and it kind of drives the behavior of as long as I have more money than month, then I'm okay. It's really only focused on a 30 day cycle. And when I was going through the process of writing the book, I, or I, I wanted to include that lifetime perspective and I highlighted a 90 year hypothetical lifetime. So 90 year hypothetical lifetime and broke it into thirds, the first 30, the middle 30 and the final 30. So the first 30, your parents basically pay for that one. So I, I don't really spend a lot of time talking about that. The middle 30, that's really the engine. That's, that's where you're, you're in your prime earning years and you're making money and that's when you need to be putting money away. And then the final 30 is when you're retired. So what became really clear to me as I was working on that piece of the book was you basically have 60 years of living that gets funded out of 30 years of earning. And okay. that's tremendous pressure on those 30 years, because in addition to needing to save for retirement and live for today, you also have 
you know, kids soccer camp and, you know, you want to take your family on vacation and you, you need cars and there's just all this stuff. There's lots of pressure on those 30 years. So if I'm getting, if I'm challenged with leading somebody to uh, save the right amount and to protect their income, you know, because, you know, if you had a disability in early in your uh, career, I mean, that's going to wipe you out. Or, you know, if you passed away, I mean, the only person that's really making money after they died is Michael Jackson. You know, it's like you're, you're not, <laughs> you know, no disrespect but he can't to Michael spend Jackson. It. No, he yeah, can't spend but, it though. But yeah. Um, so like, protecting the money you're going to make during those 30 years is hugely important to those that um, either, you know, if you're disabled, that'll be taking care of you, or if you're gone, the, the people that are left behind. You in the book go uh, into some depth on human life value, which I think is a concept yeah. that is, it's unique, I think, to the Hebner School of Life Insurance Planning. Um, that's sort right. of where that idea came from the idea that your human life value changes as you get older, because um, it's almost like having potential energy versus kinetic energy in, in physics, where you begin with these this earning potential that you have as a 25 year old, you have 30 or 40 or plus years of earning potential that that calculates into your human life value. And then when you're 70, your human life value is much more closely aligned with your actual physical value, because Right. Uh, you don't have all that necessarily that earning capacity, Michael Jackson, notwithstanding. Um, right. How did you decide to incorporate human life value into the conversation on on the budgeting side? Because I, I like the way you, you shared that and I was hoping you'd share it with our audience. Yeah, I, I reason I tie like human life value is so important in explaining the protection elements for lawsuit protection, disability and life insurance um, and human life value for those listening. It's basically the amount of money, the lump sum that would be needed in order to recreate your income stream. Uh, backing out inflation and taxes. The reason I included it in the budgeting exercise is one, I want people to, to know about the human life value concept for their, mm -hmm. for their protection mm -hmm. design. The second reason and more relevant to the budgeting exercise, I wanted human life value in there so that they had some gauge as to what's possible. Um, is I, I'd have clients sometimes they'll come to meet with me for the very first time. They have a household income of 150,000 and they tell me they want to have $20 million by the time they're 45. And, you know, that's a, that's a pretty, that's a pretty big distance to travel, uh, between that income and uh, oh, yeah. that dollar amount. So uh, that's, the, I, I wanted to include human life value so they can kind of get a gauge like, okay, well, if, if I make $150,000 a year, and I use a, a 20 times multiple or even a 30 times multiple, I'm looking at about $4 million. Okay, so that's that's kind of, you know, to reference back to what you were sh talking about with the one number um, mm -hmm. commercials from years ago, uh, I wanted mm -hmm. to give them something that was kind of like based in economics. You, I, one of the things you, you talk about in the book that I really liked, you talked about the things to beware. And it, yeah. there's, nothing, there's nothing quite like the idea of, of losing or missing out or FOMO or, um, or, or sort of having a, people hate to lose money much more than they love to make money. Um, and right. so you get into some of the behavioral finance concepts, the psychological torture that people go through and the timing torture and some of that. But one thing you relate to is a financial vampire. And, <laughs> you know, I, I, I love that idea because you're just thinking about the image of something literally being sort of sucked dry 
that's a very powerful image. How did you come up with the financial vampire concept and how does that apply to this exercise? Well, think about it. I mean, everybody's trying to get your money. Everybody's trying to get your money. And uh, Madison Avenue uh, is, is really talented at making you want stuff or believe that you need stuff. The store that really mm-hmm. I find amazing is Target. And they, they, they're the absolute experts at this. And I, I think I talk about it in the book, the, the mini deep fryer. You know, it's usually on an aisle cap. It's 1995. And each time I go to Target, uh, I walk through the aisles and I'll, I'll find somebody that has that in their, their cart. And no one will ever convince me that when they woke up that morning that they're like, okay, you know, I'm going to go and i got to cut the grass. i got to go to Target and buy the mini deep fryer. Like nobody plans on buying that. <laughs> Um, and the, the French fries on the cover look delicious, but you know, you, you, after using it once and you, you, then you got to clean the thing and it ends up in the, uh, in the next yard sale. Um, so it, the other one at target, which I like to make fun of is like the karate kid, uh, like the karate kid movie series. You know, I'm, I was, I'm a child mm-hmm. of the eighties, you know, it's like, you see that and you're like, Oh my God, I got to get that. That'd be so much fun to watch tonight. Like, um, it just, they're, they're just. Target's just so great at the uh, the impulse purchase, um, and then the the other one I, I I talk about in the book also is like uh, buying a car. I mean, every, everybody likes a new car, um, and the way that that one typically works is, you know, buying a new car. It's always it, it's always on the monthly financing that they're able to make the car seem like not that big of a deal. The car purchase. So if you if you have a monthly payment of say four hundred and fifty dollars. And the new car is going to be a monthly payment of $600. Well, then it's, it's, it's really, it's not costing you $600. It's really only costing you an extra 150, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Like that's the rationalization that goes through the mind. And like, you know, someone really smart came up with that. <laughs> and that's why they have that discussion with you. Um, so yeah. being aware of your financial vampires is hugely important to keep yourself on track. So, so the financial vampire concept is this idea that everyone's sort of out to get you. And, and we're barraged with advertising of things we need and keeping up with the Joneses. And by the way, social media did not help us in that regard. In fact, no. if anything, it made it yeah, worse because no. everyone's life is perfect on social media. And wow, look at their house, their shrubs, their driveway, their vacations. And man, why, why aren't we doing all of those things simultaneously? Um, but you also right. talk about something that I think is really powerful that I think might get missed. And that's about spending for love. Now, yeah. historically, historically, I've used the airplane safety lecture with folks, yeah. which is it, when, you're, when you're flying commercial, it says in, in the event of loss of cabin pressure, mask will drop down. Please secure your own mask before securing the mask of others, your kids and so forth. And as a father of a teenager, if I were in that situation, my immediate instinct would be to save my daughter. That's just right. a human par- parental instinct. However, in theory, and probably in practice, if I try to do that and I pass out, I'm of no help to her at all. Right. Well, financially, that's akin to making sure that your kids have undergrad and grad school carte blanche, and then you have to decide which one you're going to live with because now you no longer have your own wherewithal. So spending for love can be education. It can be other things. How do you, how do you describe that? Um, and how do you warn people who, of course, are trying to be benevolent but can be hurting themselves? Sure. The college discussion is always a challenge the, uh, because we, we want the best for our kids. I have a daughter also. She'll be going off to school in the, in the fall. 
And the way that I approach it is I, I try to approach it as early as possible and lay the groundwork with the parents because the, the thing that I, I want to help them avoid is if they don't have the money discussion about college early enough, their kids get to be 14, 15, 16, and then the college salespeople are in the school and their friends are getting uh, enamored with different schools. And once once your child locks onto an expensive school and they come to you and you're like, yeah, I, I got in, I applied, I got in, now you're on your heels. And the only mm-hmm. thing that you can say is either, no, uh, you know, we really don't have the money for that, or, um, which the statement that I really don't like to hear as the advisor is, is, well, it's it'll be okay, we'll just figure it out. And if the client doesn't have a funded retirement, like there's nothing really to figure out. Like it's, and the path that I'll walk folks down is I'll just say, look, I'm the, I'm the financial advisor. So I'll say the ugly thing that no one wants to say, which is your children don't need to go to college. We want them to go to college, but they don't need to. You, on the other hand, you have to retire. It's, it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. At some date in the future, you will receive your last paycheck. And when you do, there will be there will not be another one. And if you're not financially self-sufficient, then where are you going to be living or who will you be living with? And they usually figure it out pretty quick. And then once we have that discussion, I'll say, OK, well, you know, from my view and view as a financial advisor, one of the greatest gifts that we can give our children is to be financially independent in retirement and to not end up as a line item on their budget. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes when, you know, money's tight, you know, it's a difficult conversation and, um, you know, it, it's just, it, it is what it is. I don't, I, it, but yeah. that I, I, I've had some success stories along the way and, and helped some families along those lines, but it is a tough conversation. Well, and it, it's a two way street too, because all of us, uh, I don't know if your parents are living, but as my parents are in their eighties uh, or approaching there, you know, you start to worry about whether you're going to wind up writing checks for your daughter and your parents simultaneously while trying to handle your own stuff. And this this sandwich generation piece requires an unbelievable abundance. Um, and I, you know, I told each of my parents a couple of things, and you can tell me whether this was good advice or not, and you can beat on me if you want to. But the first thing I said <laughs> is, you don't ever have to leave me a nickel, but please, please manage to pay your own bills. Don't have me paying your bills. That would be difficult. You don't have to leave me anything, but please take care of yourselves. And the other was, please have long-term care insurance because if you don't buy long-term care insurance, I'm buying it for you and I'm bringing it up every Thanksgiving. (laughs) So that was the way the conversation (laughs) went. You will have long-term care insurance, whether I pay for it or you do. And that's the end of the discussion because that's something that sinks ships multi-generationally. If somebody gets sick, particularly cognitive impairment, and they haven't covered that base in some way, then we're stuck in a position where we either have to decide that yes, it's okay for mom to be in a Medicaid facility where we wouldn't necessarily want to choose any of our loved ones to spend time, or we have to subtract from our own retirement or our own children's um, uh, opportunities to take care of those things. Did I give good advice? Was this uh, helpful or am I just a, a terrible curmudgeon of a son? No, I, it goes back to what I said before, the, uh, that, that middle 30 is tremendous pressure on it. And if, if you're adding uh, other people's cash flows to your cash flow, 
uh, and I mean, when I say adding cash flows, I'm saying negative cash flows to right. your your monthly budget. Um, it just makes it that much harder for you to be financially independent too. Um, and it's not just uh, you, you. You've talked about parents, but it's also adult children. Um, you know, if yeah. you're subsidizing adult children, uh, same thing. So it's uh, yeah. It behooves you to have those conversations as early as possible. So I saw somewhere a statistic, and I, I'm not going to quote it because I'm not 100% sure where I saw it, but something like 70 or 75% of adult people are paying something for their children in their 20s, or grown, no, beyond college, but they're grown kids, 20s plus. That's alarming. Is life really that expensive that you can't launch, or are these kids trying to live on the, uh, the lifestyles that their parents 30 years of work created rather than the ones that they're just getting started with? Yeah, I can't speak to that statistic, um, but I, I have, when working with young people, uh, sometimes, you know, had to gently point out that, you know, the, your, your, your dad and your mom, they drive BMWs because they worked for 30, 35 years and they're now mm -hmm. well, uh, you know, they're, they're, they have a career like they're an attorney or, or they're a physician and they make a lot of money and you make $50,000 a year. So driving a BMW mm -hmm. doesn't really make sense for you. And mm -hmm. it, it's usually not a long involved discussion, but it makes sense though, because they're in that fishbowl of, oh, well, you know, my parents, this is, they, they went out to get a car and that's the car they drive. So that's probably what I should do too. Makes total sense. Um, but sometimes, you know, we, I, I have to share with them, like, you're, that's not you yet. It will be you, but it's not you yet. Well, it could be. And if you it could to, be anyway. It, yeah. Yeah. And if you try to live that lifestyle too early, then it's going to really impede you from being able to have some things uh, later on. So, uh, so anyway, but yeah, that's, uh, I, I've seen that problem. So folks go through this process and you have some worksheets and, and some other things and they go through the budget process and they're saving their 20% and they're avoiding adverse debt and they're doing all the things they need to do. And now they're getting to that third third, whether it's 60 or 65 or 74, whatever it is, they're getting to that next phase of life where instead of accumulating wealth, which I think all of us sort of intrinsically know how to do. You know how to add to something every month and watch the mountain chart. And we've all been trained to do it over our whole adult lives. But then right. you have to figure out how do you use it? How is How do taxes play a role? How do you use it? How do you create income for yourself? How do you make sure that you run out of uh, oxygen before you run out of money? Like all those kinds of things. How do you guide people or how do you suggest that people frame what the financial purpose of retirement is or, or what that process is going to look like. And then my follow-up question, and I know I'm never supposed to ask two at once, but, but I'm going to, and that is how do you handle the <laughs> non-financial aspects of retirement with these folks of trying to figure out what, what they're going to do with what could be a third of their lives and a half of their adult lives? Right. The uh, first question, um, over the last, I don't know, five years or so, I have started the retirement income planning discussion with folks in their uh, mid 40s. Okay. Uh, using the tools on the financial planning software that I use, I'll start mm -hmm. showing them based upon what we've got right now, this is what your retirement income is going to look like, uh, you know, give or take. And mm -hmm. that 
helps the client in multiple ways. One is it kind of gives them a sense as to where they're at. And then two, if they're not really on pace, then it's a motivation to save more. Uh, mm-hmm. And the savings rate is actually holding two uh, important roles. One, the obvious one, which is it's helping you accumulate money. But the second role that it plays is it it creates a, a hole in your in your cash flow. So mm-hmm. if you're saving 20% or 30% as you're getting close to retirement, then that's 20 to 30%. You're not going to be saving for retirement in retirement. So you're artificially right. keeping your standard of living lower than, than it could be. Uh, so you have less that you have to replace in retirement. So that's how I, how I do that. As it relates to uh, the uh, non-emotional uh, stuff, um, like what are they going to do when they ultimately retire? I'm in the strategic yeah. coach program with Dan Sullivan. And mm-hmm. the, one of the greatest conversations he ever taught me was this conversation called the DOS conversation where, um, you know, if, you know, looking out five years, going back to today, um, what would have to happen for me to feel happy with my progress, both personally and professionally. And I, I have that conversation about every, f- on a rolling five-year basis with all of my clients during reviews. And it helps them think through that or forces them to think through that. And um, that's been that's been enormously helpful. I, I have long believed that retirement in the traditional sense is dreadful for you, and no one should do it. And people look at me funny. You know what when Dan say Sullivan that. says? Uh, tell me. Do you, do you know what Dan Sullivan says? Yeah, I don't. I don't. Goes, I know who he is, but I don't know what he says. Dan Sullivan says, "Is nobody should retire. Everybody that has retired has died." <laughs> well. True, true, fair. You know, Bobby Bowden, Bobby Bowden, the coach from Florida State used to say that I'm not going to, I don't want to retire because then I only have one milestone left and I'm not ready for that one. Um, So similar, similar idea. I, I think that retirement, if it involves daytime TV and golf, will get very boring very fast, despite how much you love golf or daytime TV. And so I, I really do think we have to coach people through a process and ask them the question that I'm going to ask you now, because uh, <laughs> I would love to know what you want to be when you grow up. Sure. Well, I, you know, the, the default answer, which would probably be disappointing is, uh, you know, I, this is my second career. So I kind of, I've kind of been through a similar process already. Um, like I, mm-hmm. I really do enjoy what I do, but there will come a day where I will retire from this. Um, so the leading candidate right now, if, if I had to give you an answer is, uh, I, I would love to be on a lake somewhere and to be, be the guy doing fishing charters for like striped bass nice. on lakes. I would really nice. like to do that. Okay, and where's the lake? Uh, in Virginia, we've got two. Uh, there's one Smith okay. Mountain Lake down uh, south of Lynchburg, and then uh, okay. Lake Anna, which is uh, just west of um, of Fredericksburg. All right. So uh, John Crane Bass Fishing Charter is born. Is that that's <laughs> coming or or? Maybe I don't know. I mean, yeah, maybe. I mean, I, I, I would, I would love to do that, and it's also the kind okay. of thing where I can kind of decide when and how often I'm going to go out, uh, and I, can I love make my that. own schedule. So, love yeah. it. All right. Well, I'm, I'm going to ask you for an extra credit assignment, and I know there's a ton of homework in your book, and we're definitely going to sure. let you share with folks how to get in touch with you and how to get your book. So, but first, an extra credit assignment. What can folks walk away with and do today potentially? as a result of spending half hour with us? Sure, go to the book website, onenumberbudget.com and download the introduction and first chapter. 
the chapter, the, the first chapter of the book, it starts off with a poem. And uh, I, I feel that I'm not going to ruin the poem, but just the, the poem is, I, I feel is insightful. I'm trying to change the paradigm and how people think about their lives in retirement. And I would really encourage people to start there. Um, and that's something you can download and have in less than five minutes. And then love it. Also and you wrote this downloading poem. the worksheet. You wrote this poem. I did. You wrote this poem, correct? Yeah. Okay. All right. No, that's good. Yeah. It's it's one thing to quote someone else. It's another thing to put yourself out there and actually start with a poem. So I, I applaud you for that. Um, where can folks get it? You had mentioned the, the book in the first chapter. Where else can folks find out more about you? Uh, my The f website for my business is cranefinancial.com. And I'm also pretty active on LinkedIn. Uh, so you can find me there as well. This has been fun. Thank you for sharing your your wisdom, your book, uh, your humor, and uh, and your time with us. I, I really thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. And thanks for being here. Oh. oh, you're very welcome. I enjoyed it too. For all of you, thank you for watching and listening today. We'd love to hear from you. So please send us a message or leave comments at don'tretiregraduate.com or on social media. If you enjoy our show, don't keep it a secret. Share it with your friends and family so they can join you on your path to financial freedom. And please leave us ratings and reviews on your favorite podcast platforms. Those are priceless to us. We'll be back next week with another installment of Office Hours and in two weeks with another engaging guest. For now, this is your host, Eric Brotman, reminding you, don't retire, graduate. Don't Retire, Graduate is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Securities offered through Kestra Investment Services, LLC. Kestra IS, member FINRA, SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through Kestra Advisory Services, LLC. Kestra AS, an affiliate of Kestra IS. Kestra IS or Kestra AS are not affiliated with Brotman Financial or any other entity discussed. This podcast is intended for general public use. By providing this content, Park Avenue Securities, LLC, and your financial representative are not undertaking to provide investment advice or make a recommendation for a specific individual or situation or to otherwise act in a fiduciary capacity. Don't Retire, Graduate podcast is not affiliated with or endorsed by Park Avenue Securities, Guardian, or Crane Financial, and its opinions are stated or are their own. John W. Crane, Registered Representative and Financial Advisor, Park Avenue Securities, LLC, Pass, Office Jurisdiction, 11350 McCormick Road, Executive Plaza 3, Suite 202, Hunt Valley, Maryland, 21031. Telephone 667-318-0801. Securities, products, and advisory services offered through Park Avenue Securities, member FINRA, SIPC. Financial representative of Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. Park Avenue Securities, a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Crane Financial LLC is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Park Avenue Securities or Guardian. California Insurance License Number 0, G as in George, 79065. Compliance Number 2023-155804. Expiration June 2024. The world's best-known investor and Wall Street expert Warren Buffett once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel.